Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tigg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or a clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that Rare and Associated Communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. Hey, thanks for tuning in. This is Kimberly Thomas-Tagg, and you're listening to Signalize, as you probably have noticed. In any case, this episode, we're going to take a look back at some of our Dazzle for Bear co-hosts, such as Sam Fillingham of Poland Syndrome Support UK, Lee Reavy from NCBRS, David Ross, and Sean Gordon as we get ready for Dazzle for Rare Week the 7th through the 13th of August. I hope that you enjoyed this look back and are excited to learn more about these folks and the many others participating in 2023. I've selected this clip from my chat uh, in the first episode of Signalize with Sam Fillingham to share with you ahead of Dazzle Ferrer 2023. I hope you enjoy listening to this clip of our chat as much as I enjoyed having this chat with my good friend Sam. Hi, Sam. How are you this morning? Hey, Kimberly. I am really good. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm really excited to have you as our first guest. We've been talking for a couple of years now. And you've been so active in Dazzle Frere and so much has gone on. So it's really great to have you back today to talk more about Poland Syndrome Support and Network, as well as uh, some things that you've been working on, specifically the registry. So would you give folks just a bit of an overview of your organization and also a little bit about what Poland Syndrome is? Thank you for doing the podcast and obviously you Dazzle Frere as well. And this opportunity to be first on the podcast is amazing. So thank you for that privilege. It's an honor. So yeah, I'm Sam Fillingham. I'm CEO of PIP UK, the Poland Syndrome Support and Network Charity. Um, So we're a charity that supports families affected by a rare limb difference, a congenital anomaly called Poland Syndrome. The main symptoms of Poland Syndrome are a missing and underdeveloped chest muscles, chest bones, general underdevelopment in the chest area, and also underdevelopment in the hands and fingers are the main symptoms. Um, as it's a syndrome, it's a spectrum um, of effects and symptoms, but those are the main ones um, that people are affected by. The more severe cases can include differences in the development of the ribs and the organs as well. The organisation has been around for 11 years, and I think almost all of those 11 years, this has been a dream to have the registry. So I definitely feel for you know, the other organisations that have that same dream. And it only came to actual fruition in January this year. So actually having it is really new to us. And the journey to it has been, um, yeah, a long one. We, we learnt really early on from working with the Italian Poland Syndrome Association that the register needed to be our foundation building block to improving things for Poland syndrome. And that statistic we just talked about is a really good case in point because that's so varied. What is the true answer? What's the real data behind that? That's what we want to know. And even more importantly, we want to know how many of those people are female, how many are male, what side of the body they're affected on. These are questions that come up all the time for people with Poland syndrome and their families. And questions that we just simply don't have the answer to without starting with a register. 
So for all of those 11 years, we were always talking about working towards a register with our community, talking about the importance of gathering data. And it was only about two years ago now that really we got our first bit of funding to start working on the register. Prior to that, we were fully voluntary um, organisation. Um, so that piece of national lottery funding that we got gave us the um, time and resources to dedicate to building the register properly. I think the key things to start off with are really just like that early engagement with your community um, and getting them involved and consulting them. So the fact that we were talking about it all of those 11 years and we wanted to do it and we knew it was coming was turned out to be really good early engagement to the register. So two years ago, we got that funding. We started planning and researching at that point and working towards finding a registry provider engaging with all sorts of different stakeholders around what data already exists in the UK, um, you know, what data exists around the world. Do we need to start from zero or are we incorporating data? So a lot of time around the research there as well, which was really interesting because one of the key stakeholders, and if you're in England, I definitely recommend doing this, is Public Health England um, because they're the, the data body for the UK. and. I think they might have actually changed to NHS Digital, that's why I'm hesitating now, but um, at that time they were Public Health England. Um, so that was one of the key stakeholders and key changes that helped with our planning because after speaking to them, it became apparent that there is no data in the UK for Poland syndrome, there is no code for it. Again, really common in rare diseases, but it was the first time we, we truly knew that for a fact. So that was a real sort of point of understanding in our journey of like right it doesn't exist in this country at all so we need to be the starting point for it we will be the organization that will bring this data to the likes of public health england and nhs because in the thousands of rare diseases out there those organizations aren't looking at poland syndrome and don't see enough prevalence in it to look at it so Working with those types of stakeholders for me just gave me a really good boost in that research and planning of like, right, we're on the right track here, we need to do this. So then the other stakeholders from there that we engaged with were doctors and surgeons that had helped us over the years and had some good interest and knowledge in Poland syndrome, talking to them about what we wanted to do with the register and bringing the data together. Like that phrase always comes to mind, even now, you know, from little seeds, is it great acorns grow? It's so, so true. And, you know, that we're still trying to achieve so much. We've still got such a long way to go. Over probably the last four years, I've had the good fortune and the privilege to chat with David Ross on Instagram, Facebook, and personally a few times in regards to various rare disease collaborative efforts and especially mental health and men's mental health awareness. It's something that is dear to my heart and important to me as a spouse, as a patient who has a, a very caring male spouse who also has his own mental health to look after. So 
I think this is an important thing to continue to talk about, and I'm grateful for each opportunity that we've had and hope to have in the future to carry on discussions about men's mental health. I hope that you enjoy this clip from my early chat with David Ross. Hi everyone, my name is David Ross. I'm from the UK. I have a rare condition called Cowden Syndrome. It's something that affects one in every 200,000 people, carries an increased risk of getting certain cancers, autism, and developmental delays, also some of the other things that are associated with my rare disease. I've heard of Cowden syndrome and also P10 uh, syndrome. Now, I always see those two together. Are they considered the same condition or is there something that separates them? Uh, yeah, so um, it comes, uh, P10 hamartoma tumor syndrome is something, Calden syndrome comes under the umbrella of, there's an unpronounceable name which children are diagnosed with that is kind of similar to Calden syndrome. I think it's just more like they're diagnosed with as children. And I think kind of... Um, there, there was another one. I think Proteus syndrome is another one which comes under that umbrella as well. So whilst you're given the um, diagnosis of Cowden syndrome, it does fit under this umbrella, P10 homotopia tumor syndrome. The reason why it's called P10 is because of the P10 gene, which is linked to the cell overgrowths, which uh, cause the, for example, the increased risk of getting certain cancers. I think it's a bit like a complex regional pain syndrome. I think it was called RSD before, and I know I think the names change for whatever reason, or they're still valid. Both, uh, both names are still valid. We've talked more recently, and especially this year during Dazzle for Rare, about men's mental health. And when you and the other David, <laughs> it's funny to have two Davids on in one call, but when you gentlemen talked before, it was really great to hear you both speak about men's mental health. Being open about mental health issues can be more difficult or men feel discouraged. So I'd really like to hear more about the group that you're leading and sort of how that came about because, you know, advocacy is one thing, but then that's like a whole new level to take things to really is to take on a group, be a leader and to encourage men to do something that's historically kind of difficult. So I really would love to hear how that happened. So when I was diagnosed in 2017, it was just over a year after my mother passed passed away with the um, same condition uh, she'd given me before about a year before she passed a letter should I want to get tested so after she passed I thought well I'm I think it's right for a number of reasons for me to get tested. But yeah, back to that kind of uh, moment where I was diagnosed, I kind of left with a lot of feelings and emotions around what this, what this may or may not mean for me. Whilst I got in contact with the the, the organisations for my condition, one of the other things I noticed from then on was like, well, there seems to be a lot of females in the rare disease community for my condition. And, and at that point, I didn't know a lot of people outside of people from other rare diseases. But yeah, it's, I seem to get that feeling of, oh, there seems to be a lot of women, but not many males talking about what they were going through. Uh, and as time went on, that, that became clear that men were suffering. Men weren't talking about what they were going through. And in some cases, not seeking support, feeling isolated, alone. Uh, and in one case, uh, a, a male with um, my condition was feeling suicidal. Um, like me, he'd lost his mother and his sister to the same rare, rare condition. And... Bad enough losing your mother kind of in, in the 50s for my, myself. And so we, we, we had that kind of connection. But losing your sister as well, I can imagine how that must have impacted him. At the start of the first lockdown, I kind of uh, suggested to someone about wouldn't it be great to have more support for the mental health side of living with a rare disease. Um, 
uh, particularly for men. And, and straight away she got what I was saying and, and kind of like, well, actually, I know two men that would feel the same and I should connect with them. So it was June 2020, had our first meeting. And basically it was um, a meeting on Zoom. Agreed it was to be every Sunday. There was no, there's no ideal day to have a meeting in the week. It was open to all rare disease male patients, caregivers. And it's four o'clock GMT because you need to, you know, include people from one side of the world to the other side of the world. And that seemed to be, well, the best time possible. And yeah, it was, the idea was to give men that space uh, to talk about what they were going through, seek support where where needed, listen to others, talk about the topics that were impacting them. So ever since then, it's been once every month, had men from six continents, had some speakers come on to kind of inspire guys that are a few men out there. As as my journey's gone on in in this, uh, they're doing great within their own communities. Dan Lurie, uh, Frank Rivera, I've got uh, Rare Disease Dad, Adam, uh, you know, and and there's a few others. Uh, So there are some amazing guys out there kind of doing their bits. and, And I think kind of, what with the lockdowns, there has been these these discussions that now starting to happen about the niche areas of living with a rare disease. What Taylor Kane does, and and I think these areas are kind of need to be discussed. Support need needs to be there, and um, yeah, so. The group has kind of like kept going. It's hard at times. It's still an issue for men to talk about uh, what they're going through or seek support. But the fact that it's still here now is amazing. I get it. Not, not all men want to talk on Zoom. I don't at this stage have the answers for everything, but I think it's there. And whoever comes, is that's great. And I think the fact is there is showing that it, it, it needs to be there. And even if men aren't coming, I, I think... I get the vibe that men do acknowledge now. Actually, okay, Sundays are difficult for me, or perhaps I'm not. I don't need it, or not ready for it. But, but there is a, a, an acknowledgement of it being needed, and I get it. I don't expect men to come all the time. I mean, you know, life gets busy, and I understand that. But sometimes I think it's hard, and sometimes you think it could be better. But actually, it, it is going better, and it's. Actually, we had our Rare Disease Day meeting. We had kind of 23 men on, on on that call, and that was kind of almost overwhelming to get everyone's a chance to speak and the introductions were a bit too long and kind of like that was such too much as a success so yeah it's there and um, i'm really pleased it's still going we have rare disease dad adam johnson speaking in november and it's still a problem for men talking about what they're going through the fact it's there is, is a great success really and um i could see it keep going really <laughs> And also, I think as well, you know, we talk about treatment. We're too much focused on treatment cures, of course. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime? This is why I've set up with the group. I've been in conversations with men who are alone, isolated, physically, mentally. I'm not expecting anyone to fix my life, but kind of like uh, there's certainly been challenges along the way that I think for me, myself, uh, I, I've kind of had to struggle with and still like unresolved. And there are men out there through having those conversations. And obviously the area that I kind of involved with are kind of struggling and not getting the support. And kind of I've, ra- I've raised my hand for one or two of them. And they're kind of like, I don't know, they're kind of like people shouldn't be left alone with it. The first time that I ever spoke with Lee Reavy was during this early episode of Signalize a Dazzle for a podcast. Since then, I've enjoyed speaking to him a few other times and talking about ways to increase awareness of NCBRS and also ways that rare disease communities and associated communities can collaborate with one another. He has been an invaluable collaborator, a fantastic person. 
and an absolute social media superstar. So I hope you enjoy this piece of my conversation with Lee Reeby. My son was born in 2006 and straight away we knew something was different. He he wasn't like our, our previous son. Um, so anyway, our local hospital started doing loads of genetic testing. They tested for Williams syndrome and various others. Everything come back negative. Um, so then they referred him to Great Ormond Street. That was in early 2007. Um, he was seen by metabolics at Great Ormond Street, um, loads of loads of departments um, they still couldn't find nothing um, so in November 2007 he was actually sent up to Gosh for five days for intensive testing and it, it, it was just by chance that two geneticists who were in the who were working in Gosh so one is from Portugal and one is from the Netherlands they just happened to come across my son and were like wow he fits the description of this very rare syndrome so anyway all the testing was done we got sent home and we got a phone call one afternoon in December 2007 and they asked us to go back up there the next day so obviously me and my wife were thinking wow like they must have found something so we went up there the next day with our son and um they told us Callum had NCBRS, um, but he was only diagnosed by clinical features at this point because they still hadn't found the cause of the syndrome and the gene affected. So it was literally just done on facial features and symptoms and things like that. Um, so yeah, so obviously I was a young dad at that time as well. I was only 19 when my son was born. So at this point I was only just around turning 21 when we got this diagnosis myself. So yeah, we obviously walked out of Gosh and we were just like, wow, like, what is this condition? Like, we, we don't know. So obviously, as a lot of people do, and you shouldn't really, but you get onto Google and you try and start searching the information and there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and at this point, my son was actually the seventh child to be diagnosed clinically in the whole world. And that's what we was told at Gosh. So anyway, um, a couple of years passed and obviously my wife um, and myself were on the internet trying to search for more stuff. Um, and she come across a post, I think it was a mum's net because this was a long time ago now. Um, and it was basically another lady from up north in the UK. Um, and she said that her son had the same condition. Um, so we ended up actually meeting in person in 2009. Um, that was the first time we'd ever met another person. And we walked in and, and they just looked like twins. So you knew that they had the same condition. Um, and again, fast forward a few more months, my wife found another post. I think it was a Make-A-Wish charity that they had um, give a grant to another child who had the condition. So obviously we had got in contact with Make-A-Wish, they put us in contact with the family. So we met another family again in 2009 in the UK. Um, so as far as we knew at that point, there was only three of us in the UK. Um, so obviously for me, I felt alone and isolated. Not even the professionals knew anything about this condition. So like you'd go to the GP, you'd go to physio or your local hospital and they would know nothing. So it really inspired me to start a support group so no one else faced this journey alone. Because I, I, I've, again, being 21 and getting that diagnosis, walking out of that hospital, it was just so isolating and I didn't want other people to feel alone like we did. 
So anyway, I, I kept in contact with all the researchers from Great Ormond Street and who diagnosed him, and they started to put us in contact with other families around Europe as well. Um, so in 2010, we actually held our first ever UK support group meeting. Um, it was three families that I've already said about, and then we had three from around Europe. So there was, I think, one from the Netherlands, one from Italy, and I'm almost sure it was one from Spain as well. So that was the first time that we'd ever like being in a big group so it was just six families we had the two doctors researchers from great ormond street there as well so they would give like a presentation on on, on the syndrome talk to us all in individually and everything like that and and that actually continued right up until 2018 we'd had a meeting every year in the uk um, and in our last meeting we actually grew to 26 fam families um, and they were from all around the world, Canada, USA, everywhere. That is quite a journey. It is. So from going from not really being sure how many other children may also be affected to going to like three in the UK, mm -hmm. to going to 20 families internationally and being, to, being able to meet in person. Mm -hmm. I think a, a lot of other organizations might hear this and go, wow, one, that's really amazing. But two, that having a sense of community and other families like... I think we all kind of crave that is like human mm -hmm. beings. Like we want to know that we're not alone and that other people are going through similar ups and downs. And it's also great to see, I think from a parent's perspective, see other children and how they're getting along and what, you know, your child's trajectory might look like, what the future Absolutely. might look like for them as well. That is Oh, I always get the chills. Like, I love that. I love everybody being able to meet and doing it until 2018. That yes. is a lot of in-person. That's so much. We come across genes like Lark 2, and there's so many. And yeah, I love when people, like, are able to make them a, a pronounceable word <laughs> instead of trying to remember S-M-A-R-C-A-2. Yeah. Smarka too. I got that one. I can do that. <laughs> so when was that gene linked to the condition? And do we have any more information now from the time it was identified to currently? What do we know about it? The gene was actually found in 2012. So it was three, four years after my son was diagnosed and my son was actually part of the initial research to find the gene as well. So it was found in 2012 and there was a lot of research done all around the world, doctors collaborating on this research to to get this distinctive syndrome because obviously it was just, and in the beginning it was actually MBS but there's another condition who uses that acronym, so we had to change ours to NCBRS. Um, so yeah, um, it was identified in 2012 as a distinct condition, but there used to be overlap with Coffin-Cyrus syndrome as well. But obviously now it is a distinct condition, they can tell the difference between the two. Interesting, mm. I'm always interested in that because again, coming from like where I work, it's something that we're starting to get more and more information. We're starting to get patients more and more engaged in understanding why things like whole genome sequencing or genetic testing, or even just like a blood test, you know, sometimes can be really helpful and help us to identify things. And the more that we engage with that kind of research, the more we're able to start finding usable therapeutics, you know, for patients who are affected. Are there any approved therapeutics for, for folks who are affected by the syndrome? Is there anything specific to their potential epilepsies or other sort of 
condition-related issues that they might have? A lot of our uh, patients, people diagnosed with NCBRS, do have epilepsy. So it's just a case of managing that with your epilepsy doctor. I hope that you will enjoy this next clip. Uh, Speaking to Sean Gordon, Sean has been the founder of Rare Funding Group, has been a collaborator with Rare Revolution Magazine and many other organizations and groups over the last several years. It's always a pleasure to chat with him about technology, about rare disease initiatives, and about the things that each of us can do to further arm our communities with technology and information. So it's always lovely to talk to him. I hope that you'll enjoy this quick snippet of a conversation we had in 2022. So the condition I have is a, a, a very rare, a very rare condition. It's called APBD, adult polyglucosan body disease. APBD, APBD is a, a one of the a number of, of glucose body diseases where essentially it's about the poor metabolism of glucose. So our particular disease, we don't convert glucose into glycogen. Now, if you remember your high school high school uh, biology. Glycogen is the sort of backup energy source. Glucose is your first line of energy source. So, you know, you, you need, that's what your basically body burns to, 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 to create energy. Glycogen is that, is that sort of in reserve energy source that your body then draws on when the glucose is gone. We don't actually convert the glucose into glycogen. So for us, we don't really have those reserves. And so therefore, that has a number of different problems as we get older, and we'll talk about that in a second. Problem with the problem with our disease is not the conversion per se, the conversion of, gly, of glucose glycogen, It's the production of that in the in the in the word adult polyglucosan body disease. But the polyglucosan is the problem. Polyglucosan is a is a substance that is sort of toxic to nerves. So what happens is when in your, as you get older, nobody quite knows why, as you, we as we get older, the polyglucosan builds up into our brain and it impedes the signals from the brain to the to our to our peripheral nervous system. What that means is that we don't many of us experience problems in walking, problems of, of our hands don't work well. Some sadly people have d- dementia and, and almost all of us have a problem with incontinence because the brain and the, and the, again, the nervous system, the, the purple nerves don't talk to each other well. So the polyglucosan is stopping that. And so it's, it's called adult polyglucosan, adult, because many of us get, get the occurrence, get, the, get the, 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 uh, the effect of the disease only as we get older. Despite the fact that all of us, it's a genetic disease, so when we're born, we have it, but we don't often feel the effect until we get older. Personally, I was very, very, uh, very normal for since I got the effects of it at age 50. That's rather very common. Again, the scientists don't really understand why it happens at 50 because in principle, we had it our whole lives. I mean, for example, despite the fact that I'm in a wheelchair right now, I was, I used to run quite a lot, actually. So, so that, so quite nobody quite understands why we have this disease only as adults, uh, because of that disease. Sadly, many of my, my, Colleagues, my co my co patients also are in the same situation. Unfortunately, uh, APD is like many many uh, rare diseases, and the, and the process of diagnosis is quite long. My situation is probably again very common, like mass rare diseases. It took four to five years for for the disease to be positively identified, and that was only only by genetic testing. 
Another thing that we sadly share with many rare diseases is that there's very there's no there's no per se uh, cure. We can we can cure the uh, the symptoms or not cure the symptoms. We can uh, sort of ameliorate some of the symptoms. But we can't really cure the disease. What are your thoughts on where we're going on social media and where we will actually be congregating, sort of in the near future, if maybe not sooner? After I after I sort of went on uh, went on uh, retired my career in in uh, marketing and sales. I then, but I was looking for something. What can I do to help the rare disease community? Given my, I'm not a doctor, so I can't really help anybody. I'm not, I don't know biology, but I, other than high school biology. But, uh, so I do know, I was involved in marketing for, for decades. So I thought to myself, what can I do? So I created, a, as, as you mentioned, rare funding team. The goal of rare funding team was to help rare disease patient organizations uh, locate free uh, marketing resources, and so that was that's the, was the mission statement of their funding team. Part of that was obviously was helping them interact and leverage social media. So in terms of community building, Facebook and uh, LinkedIn were sort of the main tools. So I helped help help draft different statements and to help them web, build websites, logos. Translations. Those were some of the missions of their funding team. I would also like to thank uh, my friends at Rare Revolution uh, Ezine. Uh, they've been, I mean, they've been, we've been. I've been in contact with the uh, with the, the sisters Rebecca and Nicola for many many years now, and they've been a source of inspiration. And I can always add, well now they're very they're very extremely busy because they're so successful. But they've always been available to sort of bang ideas off, and so I, I very much, uh, I very much respect and, and cherish that relationship. And number three, our uh, the new organization that I was fortunate to, to be a co-founder of, World Rare Advocates Partnership. We were at the, the most recent Biotech X uh, conference representing the patient track, which was again a first time for them. And that was a big shout out to Don Ireland, who uh, really spearheaded that. I hope you've enjoyed looking back at our Dazzle for Rare co-host as much as I've enjoyed it. Don't forget to head over to our Dazzle for Rare Facebook event page. You can find that on our website, on our social media, on our link tree, just about everywhere. But you can also search hashtag Dazzle for Rare 2023 on Facebook. Click going and help us help others increase and signal boost their rare disease messages. Uh, We look forward to seeing you there and we look forward to doing as much awareness raising as we possibly can this 7th through the 13th of August. Thanks again for joining us for this look back. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Signalize, a Dazzle for Air podcast. To stay up to date on the podcast and Dazzle for Air, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, Rare, R-A-R-E. And finally, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms. 